Empty Frames is an independent production. The commentary expressed here is our own and does not reflect the opinions of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or its staff. To learn more about the museum, including the 1990 theft, please visit the museum's website at www.isgm.org. If you have any critical information relating specifically to the 1990 theft, please contact the museum's security director via the options provided on the museum's website. The museum continues to offer a reward totaling $10 million for information that can lead to the return of the stolen artwork. We are bothered by the loss the art world suffered in 1990, and we are not content with the status quo. I want to highlight the stolen Degas works. There were five of them. La Sorte de Passage, Cortege aux Environs de Florence, Program for an Artistic Soiree 1 and 2, and Three Mounted Jockeys. We started this podcast to raise awareness of the theft and to show our support for the ongoing recovery efforts. While those recovery efforts progress as they do daily, we encourage our listeners to visit the museum, to appreciate its incredible collection, both past and present, and to donate directly to the museum through its website. Again, if you enjoy this podcast and you feel as we do about the missing artwork, the most productive way for you to express your view is to donate directly to the Gardner Museum via its website. Go to isgm.org and look for the Join and Give tab, where there are options to make a donation of any size to support the museum's mission. Please donate today. And when you do, let us know on Twitter so we can personally thank you there. Thanks again. On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames, a heist story. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim. How's it going, Lance? It's going very well. How are you? I'm great. This is episode three of season one here of Empty Frames. We're talking about the Gardner Museum heist. And it's really amazing, Lance, as we've talked about with Mr. K, too, how much news breaks about this case on a weekly basis. I'm wondering, did, did it actually break before, or we're just noticing it now? So I think it's always happened, but... It's just we're, we're hyper-aware of it now. There's been three new separate news items that have hit the news feed since we've started recording this podcast. On February 15th, there was an article that was published about a West Virginia man admitted to fraud tied to the Gardner Museum heist. So this guy was trying to sell 
uh, paintings on Craigslist, and he was apprehended by federal authorities, and he later admitted that he does not have the paintings. So he goes on Craigslist, and he's thinking, I'm going to make a, a few you know, thousand quick dollars. I'm going to run this scam because no one really you know, cares about these paintings anymore. And would have been really interesting to see the feds knock on his door after. <laughs> yes. Now, now you're going to jail. Yes, I imagine uh, his face would have been pretty surprised. <laughs> Another news item was about a Degas painting that was found on a bus outside of Paris. In a, in a luggage, uh, in a suitcase. In, in the, the luggage container Yeah, uh, technically underneath the bus. Right. These customs agents went onto the bus and asked if anyone owned it or, or whose it was, and no one said anything. Now, the customs officers discovered this on February 16th just by randomly searching the luggage compartment. So it's just a random stop. Yeah, and it was stolen in December of 2009 from an exhibition in Marseille. The thing that you mentioned, which is kind of comical... Again, much like the man who posted the thing on Craigslist, the ad on Craigslist, I would have loved to have been on the bus when the customs come in with the painting and and ask the passengers on the bus, like, whose is this? It's somebody's. Somebody on that bus. Or was it somebody who, like, slipped it into someone's luggage without them knowing and then they knew the destination of the bus? Either way, whether whether they had something to do with it or not, I would have just loved to have seen all those faces. Yeah, absolutely. Like deadpan, because they did say that this was a heavy loss for French Impressionist heritage. So, I mean, people have to recognize it, right? I don't know. I suppose. The third item was a news item that that broke on the 26th or 27th of February, and it is about 81-year-old Robert Gentile, who the FBI believes he is the last surviving person to know where some of the artwork is. And he was just sentenced to 54 months in prison in an unrelated weapons case in Connecticut. Now, he's been asked constantly if he can provide... These paintings, he will not get this full sentence, but he is afraid, and he ha- as he has been for years, that he's going to die in prison. As is his attorney, who has long ridden the claim that Gentile's mind is, is faltering uh, and that he, he's afraid that he's not even going to make it through a night in prison, let alone um, a sentence of, of a couple of years. And Gentile's attorney is pretty positive that his client does not have any knowledge of where the paintings are. As a good attorney would say. Well, I think if the attorney uh, did believe that he did, then why wouldn't he try to get him a lesser prison sentence? Who knows? We're 27 years into this thing, so why wouldn't a lot of things happen, right? But when Gardner News breaks... We are here. We are here to break it on empty frames. (laughs) So, Tim, we're only... Entering into our third episode of Empty Frames, we've had two episodes. We now have someone on the outside slash inside who we're going to refer to as the Muddy River fact checker. I uh, the, love that. Isn't it great? The yeah. Muddy River is the area right around in the fens, right around the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Little, It is literally a little muddy river. We, we receive emails from this person and uh, so much like maybe, maybe thinking points for the listeners out there. Not so much speculation, just thinking points for the most part. Uh, and maybe some corrections. I just want to bring up a couple of points from uh, from this person. Uh, we had we had previously said that uh, Abbott uh, had had a New Year's Eve party. Uh, just a fact check there it was a Christmas party. 
Um, I had previously said that Whitey Bulger was a kingpin, but I didn't want to uh, discount the fact that there were many other mafia organizations in Boston at the time, and he wasn't the only one. Also, an interesting point he brought up was the Rembrandt etching the self-portrait. I don't know if a lot of, I think we've mentioned it, but it's it's basically the size of a postage stamp that was kept in a frame that's the size of, like, say, a paperback book. And they did not smash that out. They unscrewed it and took the etching. So just an interesting detail there. Not a theory, not speculation. Just a detail that's interesting to roll your head around. So they left the frame in that case as well? They left the frame in that case. Even though the frame was as big as a, a book, a paperback book? Just just something to, to stew on, you know? Why 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 do something like that? Why take the, the time to carefully remove the screws? Yeah, why wouldn't you just take the whole frame in that just case? Just grab the frame, right? Odd. Odd. Okay, those are great notes. So thank you to the Muddy River. Fact checker. Fact checker. And Lance, we have an amazing interview here today with a really great woman. She's an author. She co-wrote the book, The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Thief, with Miles Connor, the criminal, who has some association with this case, sort of by reputation. So Jenny came and met us here in the studio, and we had this great conversation. And so we're going to play about half of it here. And the other half, you can hear it on our other podcast, Crawl Space. Because... Miles' life is not consumed with the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And if you read her book, Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Thief, you'll see that the majority of that book is about these amazing stories that we keep, um, and amazing, I'm saying, like, fantastical crime stories. That's that's the majority of his life, and his music life, and his his love of art life. His life is absolutely fascinating, but not all of it is related to the Gardner heist. And as you said, probably only like 10% of the book is actually related to the Gardner heist. The book is incredible um, because of how interesting of a person he is and how well the book is written. It is a great read. I can't give it a higher recommendation. So check out The Art of the Heist, Confessions of a Master Thief, and listen to the full interview of Jenny Seiler talking to us on Crawl Space. We will link to it in the show notes. And if you have a hard time finding that book, just go to our website, uh, emptyframespodcast.com or crawlspacepodcast.com. Down at the bottom, we have a list of all these books that you can read to fully immerse yourself in the world of the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist and of Isabella Stewart Gardner herself. And um, Jenny Seiler's book with Miles Connor is down there at the bottom, and you're, you're, you'd be... Uh, remiss if you did not take advantage of uh, getting yourself that copy. Also want to let you know, if you're local to the Boston area, we do have a live show that we are doing on March 25th, 2018 for one of our other podcasts, Crawl Space. So check that out at crawlspacepodcast.com. So I started out writing fiction of the crime genre, and I was sort of casting around, thinking about sort of branching out into nonfiction. And I had just moved to New England, and my agent came to me, called me on the phone and said, hey, I have this story. It's this guy who'd like to tell his life story. He lives in Boston, and I was living in Portland, Maine at the time. And, you know, my agent said, you know, maybe you should meet him and hear his story and maybe you can tell it. Did you know anything about him before then? I did not know. Real, I had never heard of Miles Connor. I'm not from New England originally, so I didn't know who he was. I had 
like most people, I had heard about, you know, the Gardner Museum, but I didn't know anything about Miles, no. If you could sum up for our listeners who Miles Connor is in a, in a story about him, maybe a synopsis of who is Miles Connor. Whoa, that is so difficult. <laughs> Miles Connor is so many people. Um, I like what you said. He's so many people. Tell us like what peop- what versions of like so we know he's a criminal. Right. One of the things we know he is. Um, what else is he? Um, he's a very, very smart man. I mean, he was a dedicated son. His father was a policeman. Um, he's a, a avid art collector. I mean, he knows more about art and antiques than anyone I've ever met in my life. He's very funny, but there's something under the surface, you know, something going on there. And a very a man who's very interested in his life. Um, since since writing this book with Miles, I've worked on other projects with people. And I guess the thing that really, that I'll never forget about Miles, that really stands out about him, is just how interested he was in uncovering the truth about his own life. Um, I've worked with a lot of other people who have kind of, I mean, we all have our own agendas about who we are. We all, you know, believe who we are and we believe our own stories Um, but Miles was really genuinely interested in introducing me to his friends introducing me to people who might not tell the story the same way he did and really uncovering the truth about who he was your agent introduces you to Miles you go and meet him did your agent tell you that he was uh, had le- lived a life of crime or he just said, no, this guy wants to talk about his life? Yes. So my agent told me a little bit about him. Of course, the hook for the for getting me involved and sort of getting everyone involved, I think, was the his connection to the Gardner heist. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But uh, um, but so that was sort of, you know, that was my introduction to him came through that. Um, but. And it wasn't until I actually met him and started talking to him that the actual story of his life that has nothing to do with the Gardner Museum, um, that I sort of got to know that story. I just want to read the last paragraph of your uh, your introduction to the book, your your prologue to the book. As incredible as it may seem, this is a work of fact, not fiction, with the exception of a small handful of incidents to which Miles himself is the only living living witness. The events described in this book have been painstakingly researched, carefully corroborated using newspaper accounts, eyewitness testimony, court records, and various other original documents. For obvious reasons, though, most names have been changed to protect the innocent or guilty as they may be. Other than that, the account you are about to read is true. So you ha- you did an, an extensive job vetting all of the sources and all of the stories. Yes. Okay. I mean, I, um, f- well, one thing that everybody should probably know is that Miles, uh, bef- went during his last stint in prison, he was in federal prison before I met him, he suffered, nobody's really sure what happened. He either had a stroke or a heart attack or a combination of the two. And so there are small holes in his memory, which I think is part of what makes him so um eager and willing to find out sort of what to go back and really retrace what happened to him in an honest way. Um, He's very open to the fact that his memory about certain details might be off. And so he encouraged me and helped me find 
other sources to corroborate everything that had happened. He was very adamant about introducing me to people and letting me talk to other people who had been there, um, letting me talk to people who had done the MFA heist with him, um, other heists who had been in prison with him. And, um, and I mean, as a, as a writer, that was very gratifying. You know, I don't like to write things that I'm not able to corroborate. And, and in Miles's case, it just is so incredible. I mean, I was going back and rereading parts of the book before sitting down with you guys today. And I just, I mean, I had two emotions. One was that it was the it's just so incredible. I I feel like in a way I sort of failed to adequately describe his life just because as as much as is in the book, there's so much that it just doesn't even come through. I mean, that is beyond what's in the book. And I was also sort of dismayed at just how it does sound. Some of it does sound unbelievable, you know, but the sure truth does. is that it's it's all true. <laughs> I, I can vouch for that. He was an old school criminal. You know, he he came to criminality sort of by way of like martial arts. And, you know, he, he had this he has this very, very sort of chivalrous attitude. I mean, I don't know if chivalrous is the right word, but but he's very concerned with uh, loyalty and, you know, sort of this this code of ethics that really, I mean, I know I kind of repeat that over and over in the book, but it's true. He has certain certain sort of lines that he won't cross, you know, civilians are never supposed to be harmed. And, um, you know, he's very, he's very, chivalrous to women and and all of the women I spoke with who and interviewed who had who were connected with him were always very always corroborated that you know that he was a really really kind person to them before he was a criminal I guess he was also a musician and he was a real um uh, character sort of around the Revere Revere Beach he played a lot at Revere Beach um and he was this this mu- musical character. He had um, a, I don't know if it was, it was some kind of large cat, like a leopard or a cougar that he would walk right. around Revere Beach with. And I mean, we're, we are all too young, including myself, barely to remember that, that kind of time of like, just these goofy characters, you know, musicians were these goofy characters that walked around with, with, cougars and <laughs> wore weird clothes and rode their mi- motorcycle onto the stage and you know and that's what he that's was what he did yeah that's what he did yeah yep yeah. yeah. and um and he was famous for that and he was also a really really good musician anyone who's heard him play is or sing is it's pretty amazing and his band was miles and the wild ones miles or? and the wild ones okay, yeah. cool. So Miles was writing and performing his own original music. He probably could have been really big. Yes, I think so. Well, he was part of the. There, I can't imagine how many cover songs he would have been able to play when those cover when those songs weren't even written at the time anyway. He created part of that rock and roll. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he helped yeah. to mold yeah. the yeah. 
what rock and roll is. The Shanana guys who also came out of that same area, you know, he was you know, they were often in each other's bands. If you're familiar with them, it's kind of a similar aesthetic to that. He says that like the two biggest thrills for him are walking through a museum when he shouldn't be there and also being on stage in front of, you know, and entertaining a bunch of people. And it's so funny because one is him completely alone with these like amazing historical artifacts and works of art. Right. And the other is the spotlight's on him and he's, he's entertaining a bunch of people. I feel like in all of his heists, there's always an element of showmanship, you know, even, I mean, if he, if he's in a position to be a showman about his heist, he will be, you know, um, the MFA heist was a perfect example. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about That's that. What I was <laughs> gonna, yeah, let's, yeah, yeah, reference. Uh, yeah. So he walks into the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston in broad daylight and he walks out with a Rembrandt. Yes. Or runs out probably yeah. more accurately. He, I like how we're saying that. I mean, just having, just performing a heist alone is showmanship enough. That two unidentified men walked into the Museum of Fine Arts on April 14th, 1975, and walked out with a priceless Rembrandt is a matter of record. Such was the brazen nature of the heist that newspapers all over the world carried reports of it. But how exactly the thieves managed to slip away with the paintings without getting caught has been a mystery for over three decades. Until now, <laughs> that's why you. That's why you can't not read on with this right, book. Right, right, right. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And Miles was very generous with uh, helping me contact some of the other people who were involved in the heist with him. So I was really able to. And again, this that that the MFA heist is a perfect example of something that just seems incredible. When I when I describe, you know, when it's described in the book, it almost seems like I can't adequately describe it because it's so uh, just just ballsy and you know just it's like something from a movie. They had planned it so carefully. The real genius of their plan was that they knew exactly where they were going afterward. And so not only did they walk into the MFA in broad daylight, and I think it was a different time. I think 1975 was definitely a different time. You know, they, they chose the Fenway entrance because it was basically just a swamp back there. And, you know, and but they, my, my favorite part of the whole, the, all the planning is that they knew that they were going from the MFA directly to Bromley Heath, which was one of the worst housing projects in Boston at the time, and that pretty much nobody would follow them in there. And if they did, nobody would say anything about it. And then he proceeds to negotiate a lesser prison sentence. For himself. For himself. Right. So that's the right. part that's absolutely, like right. the twist in it, in, in right. the line or paragraph that is absolutely incredible. Right. So he didn't just take the Rembrandt because he wanted to take the Rembrandt. So so years earlier, before the, the theft of the Rembrandt, one of the very first big heists that he pulled off, and I think, I think this is accurate, that it was actually one of the biggest personal thefts in the history of, of the United States. Um, he and some friends robbed the Woolworth summer home in Maine. And they took um, millions of dollars in priceless paintings 
and antiques. Many of the items that he took from that came back to haunt him at various times in his life, even years and years later. So he had stolen, there were there were a few paintings, a few um, N.C. Wyeth paintings that were especially valuable that he had taken. And he was set up um, in a sting with the FBI. The FBI set him up to fence a uh, associate set set him up to try to fence some of these very valuable paintings with an FBI agent, and he was caught, and he was facing a very long prison term for having um, tried to fence these paintings. And he was having dinner with his family one night, and somebody mentioned, "Well, nothing will get you out of this short of a Rembrandt," and he. Of course, that got Miles to thinking, and he said, well, I know where there's a Rembrandt. <laughs> now, do you think that they said that to be literal, or was it a, you know... It's an expression. You, it's an expression, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. You, need a, you, need, you need something so powerful. Right. You need a Rembrandt. Right. And he took it as like, I can get hmm. a Rembrandt. Yeah, hey, there's an idea. There's an idea. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. So he actually stole, I mean, you can't, there's really no reason to steal a very famous Rembrandt painting from a museum like the MFA unless you're going to use it as a bargaining chip. You can't sell it. You can't, you know, I guess you could keep it in your house and stare at it if you wanted to. The Rembrandt was titled Portrait of a Girl Wearing a gold trim Cloak. Miles orchestrated the theft, bought tickets to the museum disguised in a tweed suit, fedora, glasses, and a fake beard. And upon their escape, after pistol whipping a guard and before speeding off in a getaway car, shots were fired at the steps of the museum. No one was hit, uh, but it caused a very dramatic movie-like scene he stole it never having the intention to keep it always with the intention to use it as a bargaining chip to you know to appear and say hey i know where that rembrandt is i can get it back if you lower my sentence and it worked yes it did but it was really complicated i think there's a whole chapter devoted to uh the intricacies of actually making this happen and it sounded like it took I think it took like six months for yeah, from it beginning took months. to end. Yeah, because there were so many agencies involved. There was the FBI. There were, um, you know, local cops. And he chose to use a friend of the family's um, who worked for the Massachusetts State Police. So because Miles' father had been a Milton cop, he had friends who were also policemen. And this man was used to bargain the, the whole thing. And Miles was actually in jail by by the time, I think they, he actually, he was in, at least in Charles Street, he was in jail by the time the whole, whole bargain went through. I think he was in the Charles Street jail awaiting trial for the, for the Wyeth thefts. So in the book, David Houghton, uh, who was an associate of Miles's, he comes to visit Miles in prison. He right. t- told him that they robbed the gardener f- to help negotiate him out of jail. Right, basically, yep. How did you verify that? Well, that's one of the things that only Miles, you know, says. It's understandable to make the connection between Miles and the gardener museum heist. Because this is a museum that he had cased. Right. And he, and again, he says that 
was it either it was either Houghton or Donati that he had uh, I think I think David was the more if I'm re- remembering c- correctly Bobby Donati was sort of the more experienced of the two and David Houghton was more kind of just kind of a friend he he wasn't a criminal himself he was sort of he knew all these guys from Milton I mean they he knew them from childhood and he had David had had a big crush on Miles' sister actually he kind of wanted to be part of it but he wasn't and they all sort of according to Miles everybody kind of protected him and kept kept him you know they would occasionally call him in to do something that they thought would be easy and that he wouldn't get too involved with um so but I think it was Miles and Bobby Donati that went to the Gardner Museum a number of times together walk through and again this is one of those things where those guys are both dead so right they died shortly after the Gardner heist right. uh, some would call those deaths suspicious and of course Bobby Donati and David Houghton died not long after the Gardner heist Donati was found stabbed to death in his trunk and Houghton died of a heart attack when Miles's friend Al had the uh, was about to make the exchange of the Rembrandt years earlier Raymond Patriarca came to him and offered him money for the for the painting and you know so people are interested in these paintings if somebody knew that Donati and Houghton had the Gardner paintings they might be interested in those too Miles's name comes up with the Gardner heist among law enforcement uh, pretty much immediately after it right. happens. And so much so that uh, Miles was in federal custody, but uh, according to the book, so strong was the FBI's suspicion that Connor was somehow involved that one of the first actions they took was to place a call to the superintendent of the, of the jail where Connor was being held asking him to confirm that Connor, who had a history of daring prison escapes, was still in his cell, which he was. Right. So he, his name comes, the, the museum's robbed. His name comes up amongst law enforcement. They say he's in, he's, he's in custody in Illinois. And then someone goes, eh, Are you maybe sure? we should check on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's his reputation. Right. I, yeah. I, could, I would love to have been there in the room when the superintendent of the jail gets a call and he says, no, it's my jail. Of, of course I would know if he escapes. Right. And then they say, just go check. Right. So what has Miles told you about the Gardner paintings? I mean, Miles has never seen them does you know he he doesn't as as far as i know at the time that we wrote that we worked on the book together he you know did not know where they were did not um but he was always pretty convinced that you know these guys did it he was always convinced that Donati and Houghton had yes. some involvement because yes. he had cased uh the gardener with Donati mm-hmm. and Donati now in the book, per Miles, I, I take it, Donati pointed out the eagle finial and yep. said, "I want, I want that." And he said, "I'll, I'll, that'll be my calling card. Yep. I'll be the if eagle." If I ever do it, you'll know, right? Because I'll take that. And now that eagle finial is not a valuable piece necessarily. It's got no. like it's like ten thousand dollars, something like that, or less maybe. But 
the only you know that that isn't stolen to sell that isn't that that could potentially be stolen to show like some proof of life that i have these other paintings right. that i could see um or it could be stolen as a calling card right but really what are you going to do with that i know other than it being a calling card right yeah something you liked yeah i mean so obviously so many pe- some of the other pieces that were taken that night were clearly just it's such a random collection of things. Well, they the two things that seem extremely random on on the surface that would be the finial, which incidentally the museum is still offering a separate one hundred thousand dollar reward for, and the ancient vase, the Shang Dynasty Gu. But when you look at the people behind it, you have one saying that it's this will be my calling card, and then you have somebody else telling Miles we did this to get you out of prison and that and he was a big collector of asian art yes he was so that could be something (laughs) where it's a hey i I got this asian art for you right totally yes yep it seems likely to me to be honest yeah that that those two guys actually had that involvement i mean and you know and and obviously meeting you and speaking to you and and you know miles well but uh reading the book you believe the things that he writes the things that you write in the book that he tells you so it's it's almost hard for me to believe or even think that he's lying about right. it. Right. I mean, I always this is what I always say about Miles in the book. I was not able to corroborate every single thing that Miles told me, but everything that I was able to corroborate proved to be true. <laughs> so I was never I never caught him in you know, there maybe there were details that over the course of 20 or 25 years he had forgotten. But every time I spoke with someone or found a newspaper article or it always corroborated everything he was telling me. There's so many weird coincidences that do make you kind of wonder. I mean, you know, there's Miles loved the whole disguise thing. And he would have loved the thing about dressing up as cops. Mm-hmm. He would have loved that. The fact that the security guard was a was a musician and played in clubs and, you know, that they could have all somehow crossed paths at some point. I, I mean, who knows? Maybe no one will ever know. You know, I mean, of course, Miles never would have allowed somebody to cut the paintings the way they did. Right. He never would have agreed to that. And Donati knew enough about art where he wouldn't. It seems like he wouldn't have done that as well and he right. learned from miles and they knew a lot about art uh it definitely seemed like bobby donati n- knew that that would really injure the value and he I, w- I could see him not doing that yeah especially if your plan was i mean if your plan was to to use it as a bargaining ship the other thing is why just take why not just take one why take more than one you know if, if that's your plan you know I mean, that maybe that who knows? It's such all, all of its speculation. I mean, they could have taken the other paintings for, you know, for to sell and just, you know, well, as long as we're here. What does Miles think? What, does he has he given you any insight on where he thinks the paintings are now? I've so I've talked to a few people, it you know, in Miles's world about where they think they are. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the conclusion that they all have is pretty anticlimactic. Um, you know, a, a, the consensus seems to be that the that the paintings probably are destroyed or lost. You know, I talked to one person who was in possession of a painting that Miles had stolen. And 
once a very, you know, a very valuable painting. And this person talked about the experience of having that painting in in his possession and and the just the intense feelings surrounding having that painting and and paranoia and fear and um I mean just listening to this person talk about what it was like to be sort of the guardian of this huge piece of art that person's conclusion is that whoever had the gardener paintings could have easily become terrified or paranoid or you know delusional and thrown them away thrown them in a lake somewhere or just burned them yeah i mean who that uh, that's extreme i think that's the most extreme theory but this this person who had a painting himself once upon a time truly believes that that's what he would have done yeah there's always the human element right it's uh you say well why would someone you know destroy these paintings but the human element is like well that that person has uncontrollable paranoia regarding this and you would never be able to guess what he would do right and when yeah and i just think when so many people are looking for something and i mean you say well why wouldn't you just leave it somewhere why wouldn't you just i don't know when you were talking to Miles about it, did he ever express any anger about how the paintings... Because you said he, he would never uh, be the one to like sink a razor blade in and cut them out of the frame. Um, did he Did he tell you that? Did he ex- ever express any anger? In I the mean, not anger, but like anyone who really appreciates fine art. I mean, that's it's a tragedy, you know, and I think he sees it that way for sure Yeah, uh, as a tragedy. Do you think he has any incentive to lie about these stories about Bobby Donati and David Houghton? No, absolutely not. I mean, there's no reason to, right? He's no. not getting. He's not going to collect a reward. No, nope. there's no the, other than that is, showmanship potentially. The, the Donati and Houghton story is definitely what he believes to be the truth. Okay. What my or I don't I don't know at this moment in time, but when I spoke to him about it, it was definitely what he believed to be true. Right, that they beca- had taken the paintings. Because why wouldn't it be, right? It's it's so close to a plan that he right. had formulated, and he had already robbed the MFA. I mean, he, he was within the circle of these known criminals, so it probably just seemed to make sense when he heard about it. Oh, they finally did it. And right. they, Houghton and Donati, were two of the people who saw Miles steal this Rembrandt from the MFA and negotiate a lesser sentence for himself. And, oh, look, three Rembrandts are stolen from the Gardner Museum. Right. And who knows, there might have been somebody else behind it, too. You know what I mean? There might have been, it might be so complicated that it's like somebody else, Miles. Thank you for listening to Empty Frames a co-production of Crawl Space Media and Audio Boom. Original music by Jared Jensen and Kevin McLeod. Please learn more by going to EmptyFramesPodcast.com and CrawlSpacePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. Follow Empty Frames on Twitter at Empty underscore Frames. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Empty Frames Podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. We go to Washington, D.C. to meet with Ulrich Boser. Here's a quick clip. Um, you know, the FBI has made it very clear that through Bobby, 
through Miles, uh, look, a name like uh, David Houghton, which, you know, uh, already gets into some weird, is it Gaelic spellings? Anyway, H-O-U. And trust us, you want to hear the full interview with Jenny Seiler on Crawl Space. So subscribe over there. Links in the show notes. Here's a clip. What's your relationship now with Miles? I get a Christmas card from him every year. Stop it. 